Welcome to the In Plain Sight podcast, a project of City Care, an Oklahoma City-based nonprofit that inspires those willing to look social injustice and extreme poverty in the face and empowers them to do whatever it takes to create change. It is our goal to inspire you to care well for your city by bringing to light stories and issues lost in plain sight, hiding in the margins of our communities. You belong here because each of us has a role to play in the collective well-being of our friends and neighbors. We are activists for the overlooked and we are so glad you're here. Welcome back to In Plain Sight, a City Care podcast. I'm your host, Jenna, and I'm so glad you're here. Today, I've invited City Care CEO Adam Luck back to the show to share with us a state of the agency, if you will. What has City Care been up to lately? What's coming soon? And what are we dreaming and scheming for in the future? On a broader note, how does our work correlate to conversations happening in real time in our city about how to care well for those hidden in plain sight? Adam provides incredible insight I know you will find valuable, and I wrapped the episode a little off topic, but I know we're all wondering, how does he view his role as a member of the Pardon and Parole Board as intrinsically tied to the work of City Care? Listen in. Adam, welcome back. Yeah, great to be here. glad to have you. <laughs> uh, I wanted to invite you on today to kind of share with us a little bit about what the past year has looked like at City yeah. Care. We're kind of calling it a state of the agency, if you will. Yeah. So I'd love for you to just kind of start at the top, share with us... Mm. What has happened? What's yeah. coming soon? And what are we dreaming and scheming about? And then I would also love for you to tell us too, what are you seeing from a broader view mm. in terms of what I believe are real-time critical conversations in our city for caring well for those who are hidden in plain sight? Yeah. And what do you perceive to be going on? Yeah, there's a lot, a lot in there. But um, yeah, it's been a it's been a great year for City Care. We've uh, across all the programs experienced. A lot of change, a lot of growth, a lot of things that we we kind of joke about we could have never seen coming. You know, a year ago, uh, we put together you know as many plans as we can, and then uh, once it gets started, it's all like all right, back to the drawing board. Um, but with kids, you know, we had a lot of change through Pathways to Greatness. We had um, about a third of our students were impacted by Pathways to Greatness, and we had six sites that actually ended up closing, and we actually ended up opening another six sites. So on the whole, we, we kind of broke even in terms of number of sites. So we're still at 36 sites. Uh, we've still got 78 partner churches that are sticking with the program and moving forward, helping making those sites happen every week. Uh, and we're serving just under 800 kids through that program. So we're hopeful that through this school year, we can kind of rebuild some of those sites that are just getting back off the ground, um, make sure that we follow up with the students who are you know, in the midst of that transition and just help Oklahoma City Public Schools its students and the families however we can um, throughout the school year. So uh, we also started a new partnership this year with the Oklahoma City Housing Authority and uh, started our first WizKids site that's actually outside of a church. So we're doing it at their community center at Fred Factory Gardens, which has been really amazing. Um, we had two churches in the area that immediately stepped up and said, yeah, we'll come help you launch that site. So we're looking at starting two more WizKid sites in partnership with the Housing Authority. So that's been a really cool program innovation for us um, at WizKids that I think is gonna be, it's gonna be really exciting. So a lot of great stuff happening there. Um, Supportive housing, you know, we opened up, uh, finished the homes that we built in partnership with Remerge this year. So we got to welcome in 10 moms and their families that are later phase participants and graduates of the Remerge program and have learned a lot over the year about how to do that community together and how to help those moms and come alongside Remerge and kind of be the 
rightness, righteous land, landlord that we, we talk a lot about, um, that programs who are helping individuals who are in need of housing, a lot of times they just don't have that. So we feel really fortunate to be in that position to be helping, helping them. Um, the, the Pershing Center, we've got 60 units of housing there and had some transition there this year and still uh, feel really great about the direction that program is headed. And um, got to hire our first staff member that was a former resident of the Pershing Center six years ago. So that was felt like a, a win for us as a program and as an organization to just celebrate the kind of people that we get to serve and also the kind of people that we get to employ and invest in. So that was, that was really great. Um, and then, of course, with homeless services, we, we had a pretty major transition this year with the day shelter and handing that back to the Homeless Alliance and trying to really honor them in that process of transition and the work that we've done together over the last eight years and looking to see how we can continue to work together in the future as we both move forward really to try and benefit those who are who are still on the margins in our community. So they're running the day shelter now, which is uh, which has gone really well, and we're excited to have the capacity to be looking at the night shelter. So we're looking at opening in 2020, you know, and we had really, uh, we purchased the building in December of last year and talked about trying to get open by the cold weather season this year. And uh, it hasn't happened. It won't happen, which is, it's okay. It's, it's disappointing on one front, but it's okay on another. We um, went through a, a second phase of the design process and actually added 50% uh, additional square footage. So we went from 8,000 square feet to a little over 12,000 square feet. And so while it's put us behind schedule a little bit, I feel really confident that getting this right the first time is going to make a big difference and making sure that this facility can meet the needs of as many people as we can in the community, I think is going to be worth the investment and the time that it takes to, to get it done right. So we're really excited about that and hopeful to, uh, to be breaking ground here in the next uh, month or two and keep, keep moving forward on that. So I'm really excited about that. Um, and I think that's kind of, you know, the major things that are going on this year. Um, I know we've got some things that we're excited to talk about moving forward in the future. We're working with a couple different agencies in Oklahoma City to um, kind of invest in what it might look like to do an affordable housing community in Oklahoma City. And this is something that hasn't really been done here yet, especially on the scale that we're talking about with multiple agencies. Um, but for the listeners who are interested in kind of seeing what's inspired us and informed our hearts the most, you can check out Community First Village in Austin. It's run by a nonprofit called Mobile Loaves and Fishes. Um, and the founder, his name is Alan Graham. He's got a phenomenal book called Welcome Homeless. And uh, I've been there three times in the last year and we sent a team down. They've got a three-day training that they, that they do um, to help people learn how they did what they did and replicate what they've done down there. And so we've got another team going in August and then another team going, or we had another team going in August and we've got another team going here in the next couple of weeks. But um, it's, it's amazing. You know, they've got 185 mobile homes and tiny homes on a 24-acre piece of land. That's about 25 minutes outside downtown Austin. And um, they built their first unit in 2013 and they've had a 92% retention rate since That's they moved incredible. here. It's amazing. And they take the same residents that, that we take, the same folks uh, we serve in Oklahoma City through the coordinated intake system. They do the same thing in the city of Austin. So, you know, they're serving individuals who've been living on the street, chronically homeless for years, um, diagnosed mental illnesses, substance use disorders, um, you know, the hardest of the hardest to serve and, and they've had phenomenal outcomes. So the community that they built there is just amazing. And they just, this summer, broke ground on another 27 acres where they're doing another 350 tiny homes. And you know, they're you know amazing. They're beautiful. It's nicer than any neighborhood I've ever lived in. They're all 
designed by the best architects in Austin and built by different firms and it's just it's amazing so uh, we've been working on this for um, gosh about a year and a half now and uh, feel like we're pretty close to uh, starting this project and excited to, to talk more about it in the coming months um, as we start moving people out and, and uh, going through the I think over the next year we'll be engaged in a, a pretty pretty detailed long-term planning process for what that community could look like along with the partner agencies that we're working with so um, that's been a pretty you know exciting development like I mentioned that you just you can't predict when you're putting together you know long-term strategic plans uh, but we're really excited to be once again just kind of stepping into a need you know we talk a lot about um, city care just really trying to figure out where the next unmet need is in our community and then asking the questions around whether or not uh, it's us and, and if it is us how are we best positioned to meet that need so I think a, a lot of the developments in the programs over the last year have come from asking those questions and then leveraging our resources as an organization and community to try and meet those needs so well, and I appreciate what I'm hearing from you too is just the thoughtfulness mm that goes into it every step of the way. Yeah. You know, we can set plans and we can mm-hmm. set dates and deadlines and ideas, yeah. um, but if that's not, can't be done with excellence or if there's a better way and it's gonna take a little longer, yeah. you know, this kind of work is like, the need feels so right. immediate yes. that it can be hard to wait. Yeah, and there's so many people working on it too. You know, we one of your questions was, how does this tie into some of the larger themes that are happening in our community? And, you know, this year we kicked off the Mayor's Task Force on Homelessness, which I'm really excited to, to be a part of and be working towards a comprehensive solution that ties together the funders, the city officials and city government and the service providers. And you know, this will be the first time in a long time that we've got a long-term strategic plan focused on a few key outcomes where you've got the foundations and philanthropists and the resources flowing to programs that are meeting those outcomes and the city government and city officials behind it who are supporting uh, working towards those outcomes as well. And you look across the country at communities who are really making progress on chronic homelessness and addressing those who are currently without homes. It's, you know, helping those folks really requires that level of intention and strategy. And so I'm excited to see what Oklahoma City comes up with and how Does we can... Does it feel a little bit like a tipping point moment? Like maybe there's some synergy there that we just haven't seen? <sighs> yeah, you know, I mean, there have been people... There are people in Oklahoma City who have been working on this a lot longer than I have, um, you know, having been back in Oklahoma for the last five years. But I... And I try to... Won- I wonder sometimes if, if it is just me, you know, being naive. But I, I talk to enough people about it that I don't feel like it's just me. I feel like there are a lot of people who get the sense that... There's um, there's some new leadership. There's some excitement. There's a lot of conversation happening around these issues. I think there's an increased level of awareness simply because um, the I mean, quite frankly, the number of individuals who are experiencing homelessness has, has we've seen a dramatic increase in the community in the last two years. Um, and number of chronically homeless individuals is uh, at the same number it was in 2010. So I mean, we're still we're still in the midst of something that as a community we still really need to address. So I think just the visible nature of those who are uh, our neighbors who are living without homes, I think has increased awareness. And then you've just got a lot of really amazing people in the community who are working on this that I think are really pushing to, to raise awareness. And then I think more than anything, we have a group of people in our community that are saying like, if I'm going to live here, then I'm going to be a part of these things. I'm going to be a part of the solutions for these Mm -hmm. issues. And and even reframing it to where it's not about problems or issues. It's like, no, that's my neighbor. Yeah. And if I'm going to raise my family here, and if I'm going to live here and work here and worship here, then I want to figure out how to make this a place that reflects my values as a person. 
And uh, I think that more than anything is leading to more conversations, which is leading to more awareness, which is leading to more resources. And hopefully all those things combine to uh, hopefully lead to, um, you know, qualitatively better outcomes, but or quantitatively better outcomes, but qualitative like neighbors who have homes and neighbors who are provided the margin that they've run out of. And we who do end up having margin are able to share that with people who don't. So uh, actually, I'd, as you say that, one thing that I do want you to mention, yeah. uh, City Care helped get part of the United Way Wayfinder grant yes, yeah. to fund a really cool program mm-hmm. that I think will allow us to directly connect to people in stories in yeah. proximity. Will you share a little bit yeah. about that? Absolutely. So we were one of, I think it was five agencies, United Way Partners. This is our first year being a United Way uh, partner agency, which has been awesome. Uh, but they they did something really unique this year in that they put out a grant. It was a $250,000 grant for United Way Partners. And their, their sole focus was funding something that currently doesn't exist in Oklahoma City, which I think is really unique because a lot of funders are focused on programs that have, uh, you know, demonstrated outcomes in the context of the local community and they're really risk averse in terms of bringing in and starting new programs so we were really excited to see that and um, apply so they went i think they had like 68 applications from different agencies um and this is really cool it is really cool i mean i want to know i want to read through those applications and see what everybody applied for but um yeah so we ended up getting um a a grant for the wayfinder uh, one of five agencies and we are partnering with an organization called Samaritan, which is based in Seattle. And they're a technology company that started a few years ago and launched a pilot in Seattle. And they've since launched a pilot in Manhattan and Austin. Um, and we're planning to launch this alongside the opening of the night shelter next year. Uh, but essentially it's a technology that connects community members in the community who have margin with um, community members in the community who don't, and they do it through technology. And so. Uh, what they do is they have electronic payment devices that are small things that they look like um, just a little keychain essentially that can fit on a lanyard or on a keychain um, and they're, they hand them out to individuals who are, are either not currently accessing services or don't do it frequently and they load it with a predetermined like dollar amount so twenty dollars or thirty dollars or something like that and in order to activate the beacon you have to come and do what they call a life care appointment which um, for the time that we operated the day shelter and what we'll be doing at the night shelter and even what we do in our supportive housing program is just really a conversation with the individual and say like, hey, where are you? You know, what do you, what do you need help with right now? Maybe it's filling out an application for social security or maybe it's filling out a housing application or, or taking a housing assessment. Um, but in order to activate it, they've got to come in and, and talk with somebody who's trained and, and doing that work alongside them. And then to keep it active, they have to maintain those appointments and come in uh, whatever we would determine, but it'll probably be you know every two weeks or once a month or something like that. Uh, but on the community side, what what happens is you get to download the app, and then you know when you're walking by somebody and you see somebody, um, it's not just you know seeing them on the street. You actually get to like you know pull them up and see on the app and get to read about them and the story that they've put on there um, and see where they've come from, what their journey is so far, maybe what some of their needs are, and then you can actually give to them through the app. Um, so if, you know, like myself, I don't normally carry cash, uh, but you know, through this, I can give to them. And then I think what's been really amazing about this program, um, is it kind of steps through what I would say are a lot of the questions that maybe we've been taught to ask, Mm -hmm. or maybe questions that we've inherited, uh, from how we were raised or our backgrounds around like, well, I don't want to give them cash because I don't want them to spend it on drugs or alcohol or whatever. Totally. It's like, okay, you know, I get that. Well, through this program, like they can only spend this money at predetermined community partners. So uh, like grocery stores or using it to pay for rent or going to get their medication or 
support, uh, you know, bus passes, um, stuff like that. And then even beyond that, you know, we've, I'm sure we both have had conversations with individuals where it's like, yeah, you know, I see people on the side of the road and I really just don't want to enable their choices. You know, maybe they've, I don't know if they've got a job or I don't know what they're doing and maybe they're just out there making money and, and asking, or maybe they just want to be there. And I think what this also does is it incentivizes them to come and actually sit down and have those appointments and talk about what their goals are and see how they're making progress. And the only way the beacon stays active is if they're having those appointments. And so I think even for those individuals, like they can be assured that the resources that they're helping this person, uh, not only is it going to things that they need and, and want in terms of like, you know, the basic needs that they have right now, but it's also going to come with a, a pretty intense conversation with somebody about where they're at and how they can continue to move forward, whatever that may look like for them. And uh, so we're really excited about this. I think, you know, based on the outcomes they've had on the pilot projects, I think we're going to see a lot of success in terms of transitions out of homelessness, um, employment, and accessing services. Mm-hmm. So we're really, we're going to focus on, we're going to do a pilot of uh, 50 beacon holders. And we'll focus on individuals who currently don't access services right now. And we're just going to see, see what we can do, see what happens. Um, and then our hope beyond that would be to broaden this out to any service provider in the community because it doesn't just have to be us. So they look for a lead implementation partner in a local context to get it off the ground. And then they can really train whoever um, to use this. So I see it as a, a medium for engagement and storytelling uh, in the community that can be facilitated by really any service provider. And then, you know, on the back end of that, you know, you imagine the storytelling power of seeing, getting a message, you know, uh, from somebody who you gave to, you know, a couple months ago and they're saying like, hey, for everybody who gave, like, thank you so much. You know, Mm -hmm. I made it into a house and I've got a job and just wanted to thank you. You know, and I think for us as a community to celebrate those stories, um, to get to know our neighbors in, in any medium that facilitates that I think is uh, something that I'd love to see happen and that's why we're excited to to be starting Samaritan. Yeah what I love is we're, we're removing barriers to services for mm-hmm. those who need them but we're also removing barriers for proximity yeah. and engagement for those of us like yeah I never carry cash you yeah. know or um, you know I want to make sure that not because of my conscience by any means but I want to make sure that somebody's getting where they need to go yeah. you know and yeah. sometimes I don't feel equipped to do that. Yeah. Absolutely. So, I love that, Adam. Yeah. Okay, so to wrap up, I'm yeah. going to throw you a little bit of a curveball. Sure. <laughs> but, you know, we always ask, when was a time that you felt hidden in plain sight, and how did someone help you feel seen? Yeah. And each month, you go serve on the pardon and parole board. Yeah. And talk about people hidden in plain sight mm-hmm. and helping them feel seen through that process. So, I know I get the the fortune of visiting with you after yeah. those meetings. Um, but I think that there's a lot of people out there that would really be curious, you know, um, how does that work intrinsically tie into what you feel called to do at City Care? Yeah. How do you make some of those choices? What has mm. the process been for mm. you? Um, as much as you could share, yeah. uh, I think that we would love to hear that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we do get to talk about it uh, in the office when I come back. And it's like, I feel like people can just tell that it's the partner bro week, you know, cause I just, I feel like I just look wiped cause I am wife. But, um, yeah, Jenna, it's been, I told Sarah last week, my wife, I told her last week that it's just been the most intense work experience I've ever had. Um, you know, and that's even, you know, having served five years in the military, three of those years overseas and, you know, everything else that we've done in life. I just, I don't think I've ever one like worked this much. So it's, 
it's been a lot of time, you know, nights and weekends working to prepare for the meetings. And then the, the meetings are almost a week long. Sometimes they go to Thursday, um, eight in the morning until, until five at night, just going through case after case after case, hundreds of cases a week. Um, so it's not just the magnitude in terms of like hours, but it's also the intensity of the material, right? Like it's reading some of the like most just heart-wrenching, gut-wrenching, horrible things that I've ever read and doing that hundreds of times over, you know, every month. And all these things that we work on, all these cycles that we lament, all these things about our community that we would hope would be different is all just rolled up into these individuals. And it's on the back end of this system. So we're seeing them and we're trying to make decisions about whether or not they're ready to get out. And it's just, it's hard to not just lament all those things. And just, I mean, the first couple of months I was like, I just want to quit. Mm-hmm. You know, I just mm-hmm. want to like go move to the mountains somewhere. And you know what, like, this isn't what life is about. I don't, I don't want to have to do this, you know, every month. Um, but it, it was a mixture of that and realizing what an immense opportunity and privilege it is to sit in that seat. And having come from a family who uh, was on the other side of many of those cycles, to be in a seat to now speak into those things and offer a perspective of uh, grace, but also you know honesty about the process. Uh, I felt I feel like this is an immense you know it's it is an opportunity and it is a privilege to be there. And so I credit Governor Stitt for appointing. He gets to appoint three out of the five people, and he's appointed three people that I think are making a big difference. And the other two folks who are appointed by the Court of Criminal Appeals and the Supreme Court, you know, they've come right alongside us. And I think it's really been, it's been a new time for the Partner Parole Board. And I think for the first time, uh, I would say, I mean, in the last several decades, I don't know if it's ever happened before, but you've got a group of people there who are really focused on whether or not somebody is ready to get out. Mm-hmm. And we're less focused on why they went in in the first place. And this this fundamental shift of, uh, instead of asking somebody, why should you get out? We're asking ourselves, why should they stay in? And I think that that's a pretty major shift. So, um, in terms of like, you know, how does it apply to the work at city care? How are they intertwined? I feel like a lot of the work that I get to do that I get to call a job is just where my heart is. And it's with, it's with people who are on the margins. It's with people who've run out of relationship and community. And I think um, a lot of the people that we get to talk to through the pardon and parole board process are folks just like that. And of course they come out of the criminal justice system with barriers to housing and employment and transportation. Um, And uh, so for me, having worked in the criminal justice system, advocating from a policy side uh, and working from that perspective, serving on the board of corrections for three years, I've been in every prison in the state, now getting to do it on this piece. I mean, it's been, I think I told you at one point, like, I, it's been so impactful for me that I feel like I was seeing it previously before I started the Pardon Parole Board in black and white. Mm-hmm. And this experience has given color to my perspective mm-hmm. on all yeah. these issues. And that's the best way I've come to describe how, how impactful this experience has been just sitting in these meetings over the last nine months. Um, so, yeah, you know, I feel really grateful to be there. I feel like uh, I've been able to fit it in a little bit better now and prepare and figure out how to make all that work and, uh, you know, manage the physical and emotional and spiritual, uh, stress of it all. And it's been a great learning experience for me and for my family and, and, uh, 
And, you know, I feel really honored to be able to share those things with people outside of the process, people who for a long time have felt like these decisions were made in private without any explanation required. And if you're on the other side of that and it's your family member or if it's you, it feels getting a no vote or not understanding the process can feel really hopeless. can feel like, well, what's the point if my education doesn't matter, if my behavior doesn't matter, if any of these other factors that are within my control don't matter, then why even try? And I think what, what we have tried to do as a board and what I feel uniquely positioned to do in terms of sharing things on social media is to uh, just provide some light and some clarity and some transparency into a process that hasn't always been transparent and hasn't there hasn't always been a lot of clarity there. And it comes with some inherent risk and not everybody loves that, but um, I think that means you're doing something right if, if you're making some people upset sometimes. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I feel really grateful to do that. And I've received you know positive feedback from the governor and his staff about the work that we're doing there. So I feel like we're headed in a really good direction. And I want to keep stirring up those conversations. And I want to keep um, shedding light in places that that light needs to be there. And uh, again, I feel like it's a privilege to just be able to help people and speak into those things and be a voice for people who may not have a voice. So it's been it's been good. It's been hard, but it's been really good. Thank you for sharing that with us. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for being here, Adam. We yeah. appreciate your thoughtful approach. Yeah. Well, it's great to be here, and uh, yeah, love it. Thank you. That episode made my heart sing. It has been such a privilege and honor to have had a front row seat to the amazing work I've witnessed across providers, stakeholders, and leaders in our community over the past year, and I believe the best is yet to come. As always, you can follow CityCare on all social media at CityCareOKC. We are activists for the overlooked, and we will see you next time. Mm-hmm.